Our Father, those words that we sing are the expression of our heart that we do hunger for your healing and for your grace. There is nothing sweeter to our souls than to have fellowship with you, to taste of your kindness in Christ, to know that sweetness of being in your presence in which there is fullness of joy. And yet our greatest experience of that here uh, is but the smallest token of what will be ours eternally when we are freed from these bodies of sin in our new resurrection bodies in your presence, never to be subject to the reality and the corruption of sin again, but unhindered joy and fellowship and love and delight. Lord, our hearts do hunger for that day more than anything. And we pray, Lord, as we now open your word and look once again at uh, the issue of how we as a church are to respond in the midst of the, the things that float around us in our culture that threaten the gospel, that diminish the glory of Christ, that are opposed to you, to your very existence and reality. And Lord, we want to live righteously and be a voice for the truth, and yet to do that with the character of Christ. And so help us even as we spend a little bit of time this morning on these issues that you would teach us, that you would shape and mold us, that you would magnify the glory of Christ to us. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we are, uh, it was unintended, but we are once again this week going to look at the issue of social justice and in very briefly, critical race theory, and we're not going to spend our time on that. Really, the goal of this message, uh, which came about midweek, by the way, so I spent the first part of the week uh, ready for Ecclesiastes chapter 9, which I'm eager to get to, uh, but it was uh, determined through conversation, primarily with my family, uh, that maybe it would be better to wrap up a few things that were left unsaid uh, last week. And again, as I mentioned last week, there's no way that you can cover everything. These, these topics are vast and wide. So the goal really is just to try to hit some of the main points uh, to help us as a church think how do we respond and think righteously about race and justice. And so the emphasis this morning will be a bit more on our response. So by way of contrast, in order to clarify the issues, we will spend a little bit of time on what social justice and critical race theory teaches, but the main emphasis will be on our response. How do we as a church uh, respond to it? You know, that one of the, the dangers that we always have as, as a church, as, as human beings, really, is to over-respond. And, and really, you can look through the, the history of the church and uh, maybe even in our own lives sometimes to, to realize that when something is so wrong, we tend to go uh, the opposite direction and, and end up making the same error in that opposite direction. In other words, so if we want to say that the definition of racism or the definition of justice or injustice by uh, those who are shaping our culture now is wrong and so antithetical to truth and to God and to Scripture, we tend to go the other way and minimize as if there is no injustice and there is no racism and there is no evils uh, in those categories for us to address. And, and so we don't want to do that either. We want to be clear. And that's what we want to do is live according to the truth and think according to the truth. And, and when that truth indicts us, we want to be indicted. And when that truth clarifies issues where there's wrong indictments, we want to be clear on that too. But the issue is that we want to walk according to the truth. We don't want to overreact uh, one way or the other. And if there's one thing that is clear throughout Scripture, our own experience, and for that matter, Ecclesiastes, which is at the heart of what he wrestles with, is that there is injustice in this world. There are wrongs that need to be righted. There are wrongs that we will never see righted this side of heaven, that there is persecution, there is oppression, there is the wrong treatment of people, there is abuse of power. That is a part of this creation, and we recognize that, and we grieve with those who are the victims of it, the true victims of it. And we, with Solomon, can resonate with many of his own frustrations and many of his own, or his own sense of limitation in understanding it all. We resonate with that because we do see evils around us that seem hopeless for us to do anything about. And so we acknowledge that. We don't we don't lack compassion. We don't uh, stick our head in the sand, as it were. 
We acknowledge that racism exists and justice exists and it's important for us to recognize them, but to recognize them rightly with a biblical worldview. And so uh, I had several categories actually to look at, but it was just way too much. And even what we have, I'm going to have to kind of edit on the fly. Uh, But I want to break this up into two major categories. One is to look at the issue of oppression, the idea of oppression very briefly as it's defined by social justice and critical race theory and then how it is defined biblically and how we are to respond. And then secondly, I want to look at the issue of race or racism, again, as it's defined by social justice and critical race theory, which is a a subcategory of that, a part of it. And then how do we respond? How are we to church to think about the idea of race and racism? And so that is the intention uh, this morning. Let's begin then, number one, with understanding a righteous understanding and response to oppression and injustice. As I mentioned last week, a key component of social justice is identity, identifying with a particular group, a group that has the label or the self-consciousness of being oppressed, being an oppressed group. This is key to the idea of social justice. As I mentioned last week, the basic idea behind this is that all people are separated into group identities such as black, female, gay, lesbian, disabled, overweight, and you go down the list. Anything that would set you off as having unique characteristics as being identified as oppressed or weak or whatever. This identity then becomes the defining essence of your experience as a human being, even your own truth. In other words, you have a truth that is known only to you. It's known only by your experience. Only you have any authority or grounds to speak on that issue. Nobody else has any right to do so. You are no longer then, as with this identity, viewed as an individual, but as the sum total, the sum of all the characteristics of your label. This is the root idea. One said, in addition to those of race, sex, class, sexuality, gender identity, religion, immigration, status, physical ability, mental health, and body size, there are subcategories such as skin tone, body shape, obtruse gender identities and sexualities, which number into the hundreds. And you're familiar with some of those. There's like, I forget the number, but this seemingly ever-growing list of gender identities not, once binary gender identity is rejected, it just opens the floodgates to whatever comes into the imagination of man. And so there's, and you just add to that all of the different subcategories and new categories of identity and ways that people can think to identify themselves, and it's there or it will be there soon. Now, if one adopts the classic liberal idea, then that these Labels aren't really what defines us. Rather, what defines us is our being a part of humanity, that we are all persons and that we all have potential and we all have life experiences and decisions and and that is what defines us as an individual. If we say that, then those who hold to an identity uh, view of mankind uh, says this, they regard that at best as being naive, one said, that it is the fruit of being deeply prejudiced and at worst full of a refusal to acknowledge that we live in that kind of society. So in other words, if we don't acknowledge that somebody's identity is valid for themselves and that they are oppressed and that they need to then be treated according to what they have suffered, then and we acknowledge that people are all human beings who have potential and need to be seen first as a human being and secondly as the characteristics of what they've experienced, then we are naive or blind or willfully a part of this problem. The infinite number of identities has led to another part of social justice, and that is this, this idea of intersectionality. I'm sure many of you all have heard of that. Uh, many of you may know what it means. The basic idea is this. Intersectionality is an ideology that says then we all have these different identities, these different this different group characteristics that we're a part of, but a person may be a part of many different identities. And intersectionality is where all of those different identities come and uh, cross over. They intersect with one another within a particular individual. So simultaneously, a person is a part of many socially constructed identity groups that overlap one another. And it is all of those different identities that make them a unique individual. However, that's a misnomer because the one thing that's lost in all of that is individuality. As one noted, 
The number of axes of social division under intersectionality can be almost infinite, but they cannot be reduced to the individual. They cannot be reduced to the individual. Now, each identity, as I noted, comes with its own set of characteristics and experiences of oppression that then put one into a group of a victim and a victim, that come, victim status that comes then from a variety of different forms of oppression. So one isn't just black. One can be a black female. One can be a black gay female. And you just go on down the list. And all of those come with their own sources of oppression. And then that is how... It is a person is uh, labeled. That's the group that they're put in. And each one of these then is oppressed by the inability to have access to power. In fact, they are the, the, the victim of power systems of which they are placed. You put that with postmodern thought, which denies the objective reality of truth then each person's truth, as I mentioned, comes not because of anything objective about them as a person, but because of their identity of oppression. And that then becomes for them reality. Society is formed, one says, on a system of power and hierarchies which decide then what can be known and how. So within all of this, if this bit seems a bit confusing, the idea of truth is not something objective, it's not something transcendent, it's not something outside of an individual. Again, it is the truth, is whatever that lived experience that person has, and particularly that lived experience as being an oppressed person of an oppressing culture and structural and structure. And nobody else then can speak to them on that because nobody else can enter into their experience. And because the very definition of what accounts for oppression and what is considered as being less valuable or less important or so on, they hold that the idea is that language itself becomes a means of control. Language itself becomes a means of control and an expression of power. And so the goal of social justice is to deconstruct language, to deconstruct this as a tool of oppression and violence. Language is a means of shaping thought, and shaping thought wields power, and in wielding power, the weak are oppressed. And so therefore, it's the mission of social justice to find, seek out every way that language is used to advance power and oppress various people. As we mentioned last time, that we are defined essentially, or at least not that everybody thinks of it in these terms, of course, but the way that the, the philosophical underpinnings or this ideology has influenced people is that we are what we feel about ourselves. We are who we feel ourselves to be. And whenever that self-identification is threatened, it becomes a form of, it becomes something that can cause us individual anxiety and sadness or depression. And therefore, that language that makes us feel that way is a means of oppression and violence. And that's why it's called hate speech. Because it causes someone to have anxiety. It causes someone to feel invalidated as a person. And we briefly mentioned that last time. So therefore, to fight this kind of oppression, there's sort of a police of speech that takes on itself to discover and destroy every vestige of what it deems to be a part of that power structure, whether in language or in traditions or whatever. That is what we sometimes popularly call cancel culture. You have to go out and you have to cancel anything that could be seen as supporting, supporting of oppression. And that's where we are. And yet, it's a system that even turns on its own. Some of you are familiar with Bill, Bill Mayer, who is a true liberal in the classic sense. In other words, somebody who thinks that there should be tolerance and you should be able to say that one person is wrong and I'm right and have your argument and go on your merry way. But even somebody like that, and even though he would be far outside of uh, anything we would consider righteous. He said this recently on a show, I don't want to talk about cancel culture and this nonsense every week, but I just think people understand how this is a tsunami and how fast the goalposts change almost on a weekly basis. 
He began the discussion on Friday night with those words. He went on and said, literally, on the top of my head, I wrote down three things that I could think of. Not just what you do now, it's anything you've ever done, not just what you say, it's now what you listen to, they can catch you for that. What you order, who you say you like, any sort of association, if you retweet something and so on it goes. Even from years ago, it becomes a means of how you are supportive of an oppressive system. In other words, it's thorough in its attempt to destroy everything that's viewed as oppression, which again is a threat to somebody's identity or their sense of truth and their real lived experience. Now, just one more thing to say on this. I'm really trying not to spend a lot of time on it. One author notes that in the 17th century enlightenment, uh, there was this famous statement that we're familiar with, and it was a statement that really went on, or was really said, to try to find some kind of objective reality. So part of modernity, part of what came out of the Enlightenment, was a destruction of all traditional sources of knowledge, and particularly revealed knowledge and knowledge as it was seen as being controlled by the church. And in doing that, there was this the development of kind of a radical doubt. We have to question everything. We have to question the source of everything. And so one you're familiar with, Rene Descartes said this famous statement, I think, therefore I am. And the point of that statement was to say, I have to have some objective starting point. If the foundation of all knowledge is destroyed, then I have to have some point where I can say, well, at least this is real. And what he came up with was this idea, well, I can think, I have self-consciousness, I can reason within myself, therefore that says that I am objectively real, I'm objectively true. This author goes on to make this comparison. This allowed, he said, an object, or this allowed what he said was an objective starting point for understanding personal reality. He goes on to say, for him, this, or the author says this, for him, meaning Descartes, the ability to think implied existence, that something must be real. For the activist scholars of the 80s, which is out of which social justice and critical race theory flows, the suffering associated with oppression implied the existence of something that could suffer and a mechanism by which that suffering can occur. I think, therefore, I am was given new life under the axiomatic acceptance of new existential bedrock. I experience oppression, therefore, I am, and so are dominance and oppression. Now, what is the sum of all that? And then we'll just stop with this. It's simply this. Oppression, the idea of being oppressed, the idea of being identified with a particular group, a group that has the status of victimhood and lack of power, who is subject to the abuse of power by distorted systems and evil systems within the world and with our own country, the fact that I experience oppression from that because of my identity becomes the thing that, that validates essentially my existence, my personhood. My whole reality becomes reduced down to how I experience oppression from the world. It's that fundamental in the mind of so many. In the light of this, real oppression gets missed or so misconstrued that there's no way forward. It's no way forward. There's all these manufactured views of oppression, and in doing so, real oppression ends up being perpetuated or even new oppressions added to that are real, but... There's left with no answer. So how are we to respond to this? How are we at the church to respond with that? That's, again, a little more than I even wanted to say, but how do, we, how do we respond to this as a church? Well, first of all, as I said at the beginning, we don't want to overreact. The first thing we do as a church is we acknowledge that oppression is real. Injustice is real. It is a reality of this fallen world. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 10, he said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. In other words, as opposed to how you are to be as my disciples and as the church, those who have power in the world abuse that power. They use it for their own sake, for their own ends, and people are trampled on and so forth. So he's acknowledging that is how power is very often and authority is very often wielded within the world, a world apart from Christ. So we acknowledge that oppression and hardship is a part of the conditions of the fall of man in a world under sin, in a creation that is groaning. And all of the scripture then stands opposed to this kind of mistreatment of others. Scripture acknowledges that injustice exists. And it's an evil. 
Let me just give a couple of passages, and I'll, I'll just, you can write down maybe the reference, but I'm going to just be reading as we go through just several passages to give you the idea, representative passages. Isaiah 10, 1 through 2 says this, Woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights so that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder orphans. There's a great evil even among my people and that is that those who are weak are exploited. They're exploited by the powerful. They're exploited by the rich. God acknowledges that. The prophet acknowledges that. He says it's real. It's happening and it needs to be addressed. Isaiah 59, 8. Those who do not know the way of peace and there is no justice in their tracks, they have made their paths crooked and whatever treads on them does not know peace. There's no justice in their tracks. They seem to act with impunity. They seem to have no care for those who are in need. This is a part of the fallen world, and this is even among God's own covenant people. The fact that there is injustice, however, does not mean that God does not care for the weak. In fact, he does care for them. Psalm 82, 3 through 4, the psalmist cries, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And then he prays, Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. He prays to God that there would be some deliverance, that this abuse of power is wrong that there would be some relief brought from God himself. The afflicted here comes from a Hebrew term that that has the idea, really, those who lack material wealth, which, if you'll remember in Ecclesiastes, he says, if you lack material wealth, that also comes with a lack of power within culture and within society. We've covered that. It also has the idea of a lack of social strength, and those two things often go together. So these are... Real injustices and the cry of God's people is that God would write them. And inasmuch as it is humanly possible that those who are guilty would repent and that those who are righteous and do have concern for righteousness would stand up and oppose this evil. So we as Christians understand that the reality that oppression exists. Power is used over the powerless and we are to recognize it. And what is our response? We are to defend the weak. We are to defend the weak when we can. We are to speak up when we have a voice to do so. The church is to defend the widow and the orphan, to defend life, to uphold truth, and care for those who have been treated unjustly. This is of the essence of what it means to love our neighbor. We don't turn a blind eye. We don't have a hard heart towards the weak, but we should care for them. It's a proof of our love for God that we love Others, that we love our neighbor, which Jesus said, if you remember in Luke 15, he gave a whole parable about that. Loving our neighbor is loving those who might culturally and socially be our opponent, who might culturally and socially be those we despise and that we stand contrary to. And yet, if they are in need, we are to love them. In the parable of the Samaritan, that Samaritan would have been the enemy of the sufferer. But in fact, he ended up being his benefactor and caretaker. So the church then is to be marked by compassion. How should we respond to that? Not by denying that hardship exists, but by showing compassion wherever we're able to, modeling the character of God. Listen, and I just want to read these just to give a flavor of it. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. The Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. The church is compassionate because it's God's own nature to be compassionate towards the suffering. He's compassionate towards us. Ultimately, his compassion towards us is our, in our greatest misery and our greatest need of sin and being under the oppression of our own iniquity and our own corruption. That is behind his revelation of himself to Moses. He said, 
He is the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and who keeps his loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's who the Lord is. He's compassionate. He's compassionate. Isaiah 63, 9 says this, speaking of the heart of God, in all of their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them, speaking of his covenant people Israel. And he lifted them and he carried them all the days of old. Even when they were suffering as a result of their own sin, God's heart went out to them in their suffering. Even when they were suffering as a means of God's own discipline to them, he would relent, he says, because his heart was full of compassion for them as his covenant people. And he could bear it no more. Such is the heart of God. Compassion was built in to the law of God. It was built into the law of God. Compassion and justice for the weak and for the needy. Let me give you just a few passages here. Well, actually, I'll just give you one for time's sake. Deuteronomy 24 says this, verses 17 through 18. He says, You shall not pervert the justice due the alien or the orphan, that is the non-Jew dwelling in your midst, that is those who are in your midst who are weak and vulnerable, the orphan, nor take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. And that's interesting because that's a refrain throughout the law and particularly in Deuteronomy, that you shall remember that you were slaves in Egypt, that you were oppressed in Egypt, that you had hardships in Egypt. Therefore, you are to... Show kindness. Therefore, you are to show justice. Therefore, you are to be merciful and compassionate toward the weak because you yourselves know what that is like as his people, as his redeemed covenant people. Our experience of grace should manifest itself in the, extent, the extending of grace. Compassion is a mark of godliness. Interestingly, even to animals, Proverbs 10, 12 says, a righteous man has regard for the life of the animal, but even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. Compassion was central to the ministry of Christ. Matthew chapter nine, see the people? He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them and he healed their sick. Matthew 15, 32, and Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat and I do not want to send them away hungry. They might faint on the way. He was compassion over their oppression by evil spirits. He was compassion over their physical needs. He was compassionate over the hardships that they faced in life when he healed the woman with, who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years, when he healed the blind people who asked him for mercy, when he fed the people when they were hungry. He healed them to relieve them from the distresses that were brought along by their ailments. He cast out demons for those who were under a particular demonic oppression. Jesus had compassion, and guess what? On most of the people that Jesus healed and that Jesus fed and that Jesus had compassion, they were not believers. They ultimately were ones who rejected him as their Messiah. And yet, he had compassion for them. He did not turn them away for that reason. He had compassion on humanity. He had compassion on others. Compassion is central to the life of God's people. James 1.27 says this, familiar words, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. There's definitely orphans and widows that are a particular class of those who are weak, but the idea is all who are weak, all who are helpless. This is a footnote to that. Hospitals and the modern concept of hospitals actually finds its origin and its link all the way back in the fourth century to a church father named Basil of Caesarea in his care for the poor in the Middle Ages, that, that what would be most parallel to our modern-day hospitals, that ministry was taken on by monasteries and so forth. And then even during, and then later, 
Christianity was behind the care of the sick, behind those who were in need. Orphanages have been an important part of Christian ministry. Again, all the way back to the 4th century into monasteries in the Middle Ages. But even during, especially during like the 1700s and the 1800s, during the Industrial Revolution in England, some of the great stories, if some of you have heard of George Mueller, who cared and taught and instructed thousands and tens of thousands over his lifetime of orphans who were left on the street. Charles Spurgeon had orphanages because they had great pity on these fatherless who were left in the streets and open to all manner of evil and crime and dissolute life. The church has always had compassion and been a spearhead and been an instigator and originator of expressing compassion for humanity and humankind. We, in some ways, experience that a little bit less in our country simply because that there's uh, provisions built into our very government, which and usually government cares for the poor and government cares for the orphanages and so forth. And the church is, is taking a backseat role in many ways to that, which um, is not always good. But even now, and you are familiar with, but many missionaries go out uh, to start orphanages. We have at least several friends who have gone to start uh, orphanages or be a part of caring for orphans in South Africa and other places like that. It's the heart of the church to care about those who are weak. Even now, we have such great opportunity to show mercy to the weak. I've been reminded a bit this week of the countless thousands that are caught up into sex trafficking, some kidnapped, some abused by foreign countries brought over here and women who don't speak the language, who have no understanding of our culture or the laws and are essentially enslaved to go into the pornography and prostitution. Children who are caught up in that. It's a horrible, horrible reality of our very own country. These are weak people. These are people who need the church's compassion. The church is to be a voice then for equal justice. We should be crying out for justice where there is injustice. Isaiah 1.17, when he calls his people to repentance, he says to them, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. The church should be a voice for what is just and for what is true. We should speak out where we see injustice. We should cry out when we see people abused by power and an evil system and the weak taken advantage of. It's a very mark of the Messiah, Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant whom I behold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He goes on to say, a bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands will wait expectedly for him. Ultimately, this is God upholding his own justice in Christ, his own righteousness in Christ. But included in that is the idea of a just society upholding what is righteous among men, upholding justice. As those committed to the truth who share in the life of Christ and love our neighbor, the church should then be a voice and an advocate for justice and against injustice wherever we see it. Just as the footnote here, we will especially should have care for the oppressed because the church itself will be oppressed and in many parts of the world is oppressed. If anyone should know what oppression is, although we ourselves in our personal lives experience at this point so little of it, but it is the church and we don't know what the future holds. In Acts 8.1, after the following the death of Stephen, it says, and on that day a great persecution began against the church at Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Peter wrote his letter to those who were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. James says, speaking to those even among the church who were in chapter 5, experiencing the abuse of the rich and the oppression of the powerful. And he says to them, be patient. Be patient, dear brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And what is the instruction that God gives to his church when we experience oppression? Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of salvation. Later, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and that's even when we are counted as the evildoers the church because of 
falling victim to the new morality of social justice and critical race theory, we are yet to keep our behavior excellent among them. As we noted last time, not return in kind, but with humility and speaking the truth. And far different from social justice warriors and critical race proponents, the oppression of Christians leads us to lay down our lives for others. It's not destruction that we seek. We don't attack and fight. We don't take up the sword. We don't rush on government buildings. We don't burn buildings. We don't destroy property. Even in the oppression, the church, when she is oppressed, seeks to be faithful to the truth, to love God, to love Christ, to love neighbor. Essentially following Christ, who being reviled did not revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So what about oppression? Well, oppression is real. The church should be compassionate. Injustice is real. The church should fight for justice, speak up where injustice is. The church should be a model of good deeds, letting our light shine before men in such a way they see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And that is our answer to those who want to redefine oppression as hurt feelings or other things. Let me move on. And this is really where I want to spend most of the time and lead us into the Lord's table, actually. What about is a righteous response to race or racism? Well, let me try to summarize this quickly. The concept of race. The idea of race, as we think of it now, really as a social, socially constructed category, I'll come back to that. That's, that's at least the way that we think of it now. But the idea of race uh, as, as a means of really oppressing somebody because of certain external characteristics, uh, is a concept that originated in the 16th century and in the context of colonialism. In the broadest sense, racism is prejudice or value assertions about another person based solely on some external, physical, geographical, or cultural distinction. That's a broad way to define race. Racism, excuse me, is prejudice or value assertions about another based solely on external, physical, geographical, and cultural distinctions. Historically, again, that was traced to the 16th century in colonialism when there was a spread and the, the oppression of other peoples and really what eventually even became in the slave trade. There was the idea that there were inferior races and that was part of the justification for doing some of the evils that took place. This kind of racism in which there is pressure, uh, prejudice and value assertions based merely on physical attributes and there, and there is a real violence and a real, uh, a real uh, physical consequence to this kind of pre- prejudice is something that has plagued the world really since it's the fall of man. But particularly, this kind of racism has been the justification for all kinds of atrocities, not only on black and white, but again in many other nations and throughout the history of the world. But even within our own nation, the kind of sort of predominant racism, not the only racism, in terms of slavery and in terms of between white and, white and black, went all the way up to the 1960s civil rights movement. And we all, or well, not us, many of us are too young now to remember things like Jim Crow laws and segregation and not being able to eat in uh, the same restaurants and use the same restrooms and so on and so forth. That is a reality. And we, we acknowledge that as the church, that that did in fact happen in our nation, and I'll come back to that too in relation to the church. But the current definition is not merely prejudice or value based on some hereditary feature. The current definition says this. It adds the element of power. In other words, racism is defined as prejudice plus power. That's a common refrain. Prejudice plus power. Thus, wherever there is a power imbalance, racism is charged. According to critical race theory then, since Western civilization is the product of European colonialism, the entire structure is the creation of white man and inherently designed to promote whiteness, white privilege, and exert white power. That's at the heart of critical race theory. Everything in Western culture and society was designed by those who were in power. Those who were in power were white. Therefore, every structure and system and ideology and even the very language that we have become accustomed to is an expression of that power and is inherently racist. 
Now, why is that important to understand that difference? Because it means this, that a person then is defined as being racist, not on the basis of their actions, not on the basis of the character of their life, not on the basis of their own deeply held beliefs. A person is racist by being identified as part of the power structure, namely white. And then there's whiteness. That's where it comes in. So you may have never done anything. You may have actually been very instrumental in fighting racism, and yet you are a racist if you are white and a part of the power structure that has oppressed people. It is inherent. And if you don't recognize it, then it simply means you haven't been woke yet. Woke up to the reality of oppression and racism. And if you are a white, heterosexual Christian male, you are the worst of the worst. The essential nature of whiteness is, is exerting power over others and is so ingrained into our system, uh, so it goes, that it's not even recognized by most. And again, that's the whole idea of being woke. Woke is being woke up to these realities. No longer sleeping, but awake to it. One note, we are told that racism that is embedded in culture and that we cannot escape it. We hear that white people are inherently racist. We are told racism is prejudice plus power. Therefore, only white people can be race. Race, as exerting oppression or being oppressed, is the sole issue then. And since, again, white people are said to be, have power, only white people can be racist. Let me give you an example that one gave, and I'm borrowing this. When the New York Times hired Asian-American Sarah Young, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, to their editorial board, despite her tweets including white men are expletive and cancel white people, her defenders involved the new definition of racism, that is prejudice plus power, to prove her blamelessness as an Asian woman in a white male-dominated society, patriarchal, if we want to pick up the feminist terms as well. The argument went this way, that she lacked the power necessary for her actions to count as racist. In other words, she could express hatred towards the right male. She could call for their cancellation and annihilation. But she cannot, by definition, according to this new definition, be racist because she has no power. Which is by itself a misnomer because in the position that she held as a journalist in a prominent uh, newspaper like that, she had all kinds of power that most of us never have. And the ability to influence. But yet, merely by the fact that she is Asian and somebody else is white, she lacks power, they have power, they need to be destroyed. This is how it works. Within this theory, a person's identity as black or other oppressed group is superior to their identity as a human person. And this is going to lead us towards our response as a church. As a matter of fact, Kimberlé Crenshaw, who was a black feminist and an important figure in arguing for this understanding of black as being uh, the primary identification uh, of, of a person that is oppressed. She said this in an, in an important essay. She said this. We can all recognize the distinction between the claims, I am black, and the claim, I am a person who happens to be black. I am black takes the socially imposed identity and empowers it as an anchor of subjectivity. In other words, my own experience, my own truth, my own experience of oppression. I am a person, she goes on to say, who happens to be black, on the other hand, achieves self-identification by straining for certain universality, in effect, I am a person, and for concomitant dismissal of the imposed category black as contingent, circumstantial, and non-determinant. What does all that nonsense mean? Okay, that language. I'm sorry. I'm reading that out loud, and I realize that doesn't probably make a lot of sense just reading it. But the idea, the idea is simply this. Let me just take that and, and, and simplify it. The idea is this, is that she says it's inherently ignorant and foolish and, and essentially evil to say that my primary identity is a human person. She says, no, what is the only right response and way that I can be self-authenticated essentially is to identify myself in my blackness and as an oppressed person. And so actually, if you were to say to someone who holds to this that the core of who you are is a human person with human potential and human responsibility and human dignity, that actually is an offensive statement to them because they're not defined first by being a human but by being black or by being gay or by being a woman or by being whatever. You go down the list. So the most significant aspect of a person's reality is in this... Bar, drawing from her statement, is the distinction of blackness 
as a subjective experience, not humanity as a universal reality, the exact opposite of a biblical worldview, and the exact opposite, I might note, of the civil rights movement of the 60s. If you read Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, or I Have a Dream speech, and you should read them, they're not long. It's exactly the opposite of the arguments that he was making. So applying this mindset to the idea of race and every other identity marker, everything is viewed through the lens of vying for power. One noted this, speaking of this theory. It does the same thing over and over again. Look for the power imbalances, bigotry, and biases that it assumes must be present and pick at them. It reduces everything to one single variable, one single topic of conversation, one single focus of interpretation, prejudice, as understood under the power dynasty names under the power dynasties we'll leave there. So that is just to set context is the only purpose of doing that. So how are we to respond? How are we as a church to think about race? Well, let me begin with this way. First, as with oppression, we acknowledge that racism does exist. It does exist. We don't deny it. We don't want to go on the other side. Part of fallen history, part of the fallen history of man, our nation, and the church acknowledges that racism is a part of that history. Christians, more than any other, recognize the reality of sin and its comprehensive effects in the world that include racism. One has noted this. The biblical worldview provides a comprehensive view of the fall. It not only affects individuals, it disorders all of creation, including human-formed organizations, systems, and structures. So we acknowledge that. There is systematic, systemic evil in our society. We need to look no further than pornography and abortion that has killed tens of millions of lives in the womb, that has ruined countless other lives, nameless faces, through abuse and extortion. There is systemic evil in our society. We fully acknowledge that. One said this, ideological social justice advocates are known for throwing the terms systemic and structural around in a very generalized way, rarely getting specific about which policies or rules cause the whole system or structure to be racist. And that's what I did earlier. The problem is, is that there are real evils. There is real oppression. There is real racism. There is real systemic evil in the culture. But the social justice warriors don't really care about those kind of things. They care more about a generalized agenda that validates their own position. Not about real human suffering. That I can pretty much assure you. The argument for racism from social justice mindset or from critical race theory is that it's validated or proven or the evidence for it Very often, anyway, what is laid down as evidence is disproportionate statistics. So, for example, prison population, number of kids being expelled from schools, and those type of things. However, the problem with that is these charges fail to take into account actual behavior and crimes committed. The the narrative is that White people are just going around and randomly killing and oppressing and, in, and imprisoning black people. The problem is, is that the reality that does, has it ever happened in, in an instance? Maybe. But that doesn't fit with the reality of what goes on throughout the nation day to day. As of 2017, one statistic noted 70% of black children, for example, are born without two parents. 70% as of three years ago. It is statistically established that education, wealth, and success are directly affected when a child is raised in a stable two-parent home and negatively affected when they're not. That's just statistically true. It's not a debatable fact, but those kind of things aren't allowed into the discussion. They're simply not allowed. And even to suggest that they should be allowed is, in fact, just a picture of your prejudice and your evil. That's how it goes, that you don't understand. More could be said. But real concern, if there was real concern about human suffering, it would address the root causes for the disproportionate number of blacks killed by homicide. That's stated often. It's a reality. Far more killed by other minorities than by whites. 
or the failing numbers of school or number of unborn children killed in the womb. There's over, I read one statistic, over five times more likelihood of a black mother to get an abortion than a white. It's all evil, but just as a matter of statistics. The core issue in all of that is the breakdown of the family. It's the breakdown of the family, which has many aspects to it. So the fight against racism or systemic evil is a biblical concern, but it needs to be intelligent, specific, and addressed at root issues. This is true justice. Getting onto the bandwagon of social justice ideology, which some Christians have done, or critical race theory, does not address real issues. It does not address real issues. And to even say what we're saying here this morning would be offensive to many. But it is what the church needs to speak about so that because we truly do care about people and we truly do care about human flourishing. Racism is prejudice against the people is a part of our nation's history. It's in relation to a variety of things, but again, of course, to us, it, it most uh, intensely is displayed in slavery. Slavery is a part of our nation's history. It has residual effects. Although legally abolished in the 1800s, issues related to voting... As I mentioned earlier, segregation, opportunities and culture and society lingered into late into the 20th century up until the civil rights movement of the 60s. And even then it took time afterwards. And sadly, it's a part of the church's history as well. In times of segregation, there were biblical defenses about why that was okay. Many in the black community were not allowed into conservative churches or into conservative seminaries. And therefore, where did many of the black population go? They went to liberal seminaries that accepted them. And the ideas such as liberal theology and the social gospel then became predominant in black religious life. The church does have real, the church in the sense of the, the history of the church, real culpability. We don't deny that at all. And we don't have a lack of compassion and, and sadness about that. That is, that is a reality. While this sin how, then should not be denied, however, it is a sin that by the church has been repented of, and this is the important material point. It's not to say that never in any case, in any place, in any town, ever, anywhere, that it doesn't happen, but it is not as it was in 1950 or 1940. If you went into most churches, they would have no idea what you were even talking about when you bring the charge of racism against them. It does not put guilt, the past of the church does not put guilt on each individual in the present, nor is the condition of churches now, nor is focusing on past sins a means of moving forward. Where the sin is present, it needs to be addressed and dealt with. However, it is not helpful, nor is it biblical or righteous to expect repentance and contrition from institutions and individuals that not, have not committed the actual sins. Do you get that? We should acknowledge the reality of past sins, learn from them, and then move forward in righteousness, love, and obedience in the present. Let me just give a few brief thoughts before we get into a theology, essentially, of race. And I'll do that quickly. I know I keep saying that. First of all, we understand that the conditions of all of men are, fall under the sovereignty of God. Acts chapter 17 Speaking of nations having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. God is sovereign over the histories of peoples and nations and individuals and groups. It doesn't right any wrong. That doesn't make any injustice okay. But it is to say that ultimately even as Joseph did in his own individual life if we could use that representatively who saw God's sovereign hand over his difficult circumstances, but he never used that as a means to reject God or rebel God or to be angry, but to trust him and obey him. And ultimately, those things changed. The church should emphasize the potential of every individual, recognizing that there are difficulties that different individuals have to face and even groups of people. They cannot be a scapegoat, as we mentioned last week, for actual behavior. The goal of racial equality is fostered by enabling and encouraging the conditions for success of the individual based on his or her life decisions. In other words, responsible, moral decisions 
by having the dignity of being a human being made in the image of God. Let me give just briefly, and this is going to take us to the Lord's table. What, how are we to think about race? I mean, so there's the critical race theory and so forth, but how are we as a church to think about race? And this is just a reminder for us, essentially. Well, let me note first that the church of every place on the face of the planet should be the picture of love for humanity and equality. This reality is grounded in creation and redemption. So just listen as I go through this briefly. And obviously this, there's more that could be said. I just want to give an, an a overview. How are we to think about race? Well, we are to think about race first by understanding that man is made in the image of God. That's creation. Man is made in the image of God. This is the fundamental starting point of our identity and our dignity as human beings. Let us make man in our own image according to our own likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. It is a creative act that he created two individuals, Adam and then Eve, and he told them to populate the earth and to rule over it. And they were to do so and had the capacity to do so because of this unique feature out of all of creation of bearing the image of God. Acts 17, 24 through 26 says this, he made from one man everywhere nation of every, or everywhere every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth from one man. In him, he goes on to say, we live and we move and exist and some of your own, your own prophets have said for we are also his children. Speaking of that verse, one commentator said this, all mankind was one in origin, all created by God and all descendants from a common ancestor. This removes all imaginable justification for the belief that Greeks were innately superior to barbarians, which was the original context. As it removes all justification for comparable belief today, which is our context. Neither in nature nor in grace, neither in the old creation nor in the new, is there any room for ideas of racial superiority or inferiority. We are made in the image of God. What does it mean to bear his image? We certainly don't bear the image of God in one sense in the fullness of his transcendent attributes, such as his self-existence and eternality and infinity and so forth. But we do bear his image truly and fully. What does it mean? Well, there's a debate exactly what that means. That's actually a huge discussion. One said this, because man was created in the image of God, he was made for communion with God, to rule God's creation on his behalf, and living in communion with him. We could say this, that to bear, this is the way it's simplified in my mind. To bear God's image includes everything that enables us to live in fellowship with him as self-conscious moral beings, subordinately ruling over his creation and reflecting his own relational life with others. Let me say that again. To bear God's image includes everything that enables us to live in fellowship with him as self-conscious moral beings, subordinately ruling over his creation and reflecting his own relational life with others in love. We are to live in fellowship with God and in fellowship with one another as fellow image bearers because we were all created in the image of God. We all have one original source, Adam and Eve. Then we all fall under the category of humanity. That's where we start. How does that work itself out in application? It means that we afford each person the dignity of being an image bearer of God. The image of God finds its greatest meaning in the person of Jesus Christ, whom Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Christ, then, is the representative head of humanity by virtue of his full humanity, though he is fully God. His full humanity allows him to be the head of humanity. And that's why... His redeeming work would be for all men. Genesis 3.15, he shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. 
He's going to destroy the works of Satan for every descendant of Adam and Eve. Genesis 12, 3, and the promise to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth. Why? They're all from one man and woman. Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me all the ends of the earth and be saved, for I am God and there is no other. When Christ took on flesh, he took on full humanity for the salvation of humanity, of God's image bearers. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John says. Hebrews, that since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He had to be made like his brethren, black, white, fat, skinny, small, smart, stupid, everybody. He had to be made like them so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Luke 3.38, in the genealogy he ends this way, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. It takes his humanity all the way back to the garden. And then his life and his death then is seen as the second Adam. The second Adam. Let me just mention this, I was... Hoping to spend more time. I'll jump to 1 Corinthians. You could read First Romans 5, which is a key here, but just listen to 1 Corinthians. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of all those who are asleep. Listen, for since by man came death, Adam, by man also came the resurrection of the dead, Christ. He summarizes this in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Paul said, is God the God of Jews only after he talked about the propitiation of Christ so that God could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus? He says this, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God, indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. In other words, the propitiation that Christ provided was for all humanity, for Jews and for Gentiles. And it's all by faith in Christ. He himself bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Who is the R? Christ died for the sins of Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, freeman, rich, poor, intellectual, not so, black, white, Asian, Indian, South American, Russian, South Pacific, Middle Eastern, and go down the list. Those are the sins he died for. And if we were to hold and if the church adopts in any way this idea of a social justice mentality, and certainly for those even outside of the church, it provides essentially a new gospel. It says, I am not guilty by base of my identity and you're guilty on base of your identity. So therefore, if I am oppressed, I am not guilty. I have no re need of redemption or no personal sin that makes me accountable to God. One said this, our not guilty sentence no longer comes by being in Christ, but by being in this or that ethnic group. It is justification apart from Christ, which sadly is a false gospel. It leaves billions of people missing out on the only real way to be declared righteous salvation by God's free grace through the death of Jesus. The definition gets racist off the hook much too easily. It is by the blood of Jesus and only by the blood of Jesus that sinners of every color can find true blamelessness from any sin, including the sin of racism. We are, to wrap this up and come into the tables, we are then the body of Christ. We are in Christ. We are a new man. Christian identification is that of being first in the image of God and then in the image of Christ as those who belong to him. We belong to Christ, we are in union with Christ, and we are indwelled by the Spirit. We who are many, Paul says in Romans 12, are one body and individually members of one another. For even as the one body is one and has many members in 1 Corinthians 12, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. The great glory of the gospel in Ephesians 2, we don't have time to turn there, is that Jew and Gentile who were at hostility with one another, who were in enmity with one another, are now at peace in Christ in whom he has created one new man and all of those who are united to him by faith through the Spirit.
And this brings us then to the Lord's table. And that great passage which we can never tire of hearing in Revelation chapter 6. The Lamb, after he had been counted worthy to open the seal to begin the judgments of God in anticipation of his establishing his kingdom on earth, hears this from the chorus of those who are redeemed and before his presence. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. And listen, purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you made them to be a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. From every tribe, nation, tongue, language, etc. That is the message of the church. That is why we go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded us. And that is pictured most gloriously in the Lord's table, in the supper. No matter where a person is from, no matter what your personal experience, no matter any external attribute about you, The glory of the Lord's table is to say that we are together one in the body of Christ. Our identification, our uniqueness adds to the flavor and the diversity and the depth and the enjoyment of the body of Christ. For we're all different. We all have different experiences. We all bring different things. We all have different giftedness. Ways that that giftedness is expressed. But we all share the same Father, the same Lord, the same baptism, the same hope, the same Spirit the same joys, the same loves, the same fears, the same future, the same inheritance. And these elements in all of their simplicity demonstrate that profound reality that we are the body of Christ. And so outside of all the nonsense and the insanity and the irrationality, the foolishness of the world around us, we must not be deterred from our understanding who we are as made in the image of God, the message we proclaimed about how God's image bearers can be reconciled to him through Christ. That's our message. It's simple. It'll be hated. It'll be rejected. It'll be counted stupid. It'll be counted oppressive. It'll be counted ignorant. It'll be counted all kinds of things as it has throughout the history of the church for different reasons. And yet it is our message because it's true. It's that simple. It's true. Christ truly is the son of God in flesh. God really did make us in his image. He really did atone for the sins of man. And we really can be forgiven. We really can acknowledge the reality of sin and yet work productively together towards what is just and right and holy and good and for flourishing of humanity. But we can't do it believing and basing it on a system of lies. We have to do it based on the truth. And so let's together, let me pray and then we'll take these elements. Father, Thank you for being so kind to us as to provide for us a Savior. And our Lord is for accomplishing that salvation. Holy Spirit for applying that salvation to us. And may we keep a clear and a level head in the midst of all of this around us so that we can be a light for the truth and so that those who are trapped in this kind of thinking can truly come to know the forgiveness of their sin and grace and peace and not the anger and bitterness and hostility, which has no ultimate answer, which divides and produces destruction and damage. We have a message of hope. We have the truth, which gives us the advantage. We have a real hope. Help us to remember that even now as we take these elements together. In your name, Jesus, amen.